Let's hear Thangham Debonair. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, the Good Friday Agreement was one of the greatest legacies of the last Labour government. Is the Minister content that messing up the border issue could mean that destroying the Good Friday Agreement is, could be one of this government's legacies? Uh, Mr Speaker, can I assure the Honourable Lady that the joint report published in December of this year between the European Union Commission and the United Kingdom makes it absolutely clear that the Belfast Agreement remains intact and all of it is part of the uh, it will remain intact. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Liz McInnes. Question number one, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I know the whole House will join me in paying tribute to Captain Dean Sprouting who died in a road traffic accident in Iraq on the 31st of January. His death was not the result of enemy activity. I know members across the House will want to join me in offering condolences to his family and friends at this difficult time. Mr Speaker, 100 years ago yesterday, women won the right to vote. And uh, I know... I know the whole House. Uh, well, from uh, a, a sedentary position, uh, Labour say some women, indeed some women, I'm pleased to say that universal suffrage did come for women ten years later under a Conservative yeah. government. But I'm sure, I'm sure, Mr Speaker, the whole House will want to join me in marking the heroic and tireless struggle that led to women having the vote because it forever changed our nation's future. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Liz McInnes. My constituent, Natasha Dudarenko, suffers from Fanconi anemia, a debilitating disease that carries with it a high risk of cancer. Natasha was on lifetime disability living allowance, which was removed following a PIP assessment. When Natasha appealed, she was told that because she has a degree, she does not need as much support. Now, I'm sure the Prime Minister is aware that disease and cancer are no respecters of uh, disability, of uh, qualifications. And I'd like to ask the Prime Minister what urgent action she will take to improve the quality and the standard of PIP assessment. Obviously, the DWP is constantly looking at the standard of PIP assessments that are being made. I'm, I'm sorry to hear the case that the Honourable Lady has set out. I think most people will be very concerned at hearing that case. I'm very surprised at the judgment that was given in relation to that individual. Can I suggest that she sends in the detail of that case and we'll make sure that that's looked into? Craig McKinley. Mr Speaker, uh, my right honourable friend will be aware of the UKIP-led Thanet Council's broken election promise to support the reopening of Menston as an airport. On the basis that the Menston site was to be redesignated as mixed use with thousands of houses, the plan was sensibly rejected by local councillors, and I salute them for doing so. Can she give me her assurance that Thanet should now be given as reasonable a time as necessary, perhaps under a new administration, to get our local plan right? My honourable friend is right to raise this matter on behalf of his constituents. I understand that actually Thanet District Council has not adopted a local plan since 2006. And that's why my right honourable friend, the Housing Secretary, has written to the District Council to begin the formal process actually of considering intervention. And this is a very serious step. Uh, which shows uh, that the Council has not been doing uh, what it should be doing in relation to a local plan. So my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State, is now considering whether to intervene, and he will be making an announcement in due course. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Captain Dean Sprouting from Jarrow on his death, and his family must accept our condolences on this terrible incident that happened. Um, It is, of course, the anniversary of women first getting the right to vote in uh, uh, 1918, and I pay tribute to all those that campaigned all over the country to achieve that right, and we should understand that our rights come from the activities of ordinary people doing extraordinary things to bring about democracy and justice within our society. And those women that suffered grievously, being force-fed in Holloway Prison in my constituency, and those that suffered so much, need to be remembered for all time. Working-class women, as well as many other women, fought for that right, and it's one we should all be proud of. Yeah.
Mr Speaker, with crime rising, does the Prime Minister regret cutting 21,000 police officers? <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I first of all say to the right honourable gentleman that we should be saluting all of those who were involved in that struggle to ensure that women could get the right to vote. I was... I was very pleased yesterday to have an opportunity to meet Helen Pankhurst, the great-granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst, uh, and to see that that memory is being kept going. And as I said yesterday in my speech, I myself uh, heard about the fight by the suffragettes from my uh, late godmother, whose mother was a suffragette, and both whose parents knew the Pankhursts. He raises the issue of police numbers and uh, and crime. What we actually have seen from the uh, crime survey is that crime is now down at record low levels. That is... That is, what, that is what has been achieved, and it's been achieved by a Conservative government that at the same time has been protecting police budgets. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, recorded crime is up by one-fifth since 2010, violent crime up by 20%, and during the period the Prime Minister was Home Secretary, £2.3 billion was cut from police budgets. Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary warns neighbourhood policing risks being eroded and the shortage of detectives is at a national crisis. Does the Prime Minister think the Inspectorate is scaremongering? Exactly. The, the Right Honourable Gentleman mentions the issue about recorded crime. One of the challenges that we have seen in the police in recent years is ensuring that we get proper recording of particularly of certain types of crime. And I'm pleased to say that we have seen improvements over the last seven to eight years in the recording by police of, uh, of certain types of crime. Now, he also talks about the uh, issue of police budgets. As I've said, this is a government that is actually protecting police budgets. And I might, I might remind the right honourable gentleman that the Labour Party's former Shadow Home Secretary, now the Police and Crime Commissioner for Greater Manchester, himself said that the police could take an up to 10% cut in their budgets. <coughs> Mr Speaker, the inspectorate also found that the police are failing to properly record tens of thousands of offences. And in addition to the cutting of 21,000 police officers, the government's also cut 6,700 police community support officers. The Chief Constable of Bedfordshire says we do not have the resources to keep residents safe. The position is a scandal. Too many people don't feel safe and too many people aren't safe. We've just seen the highest rise in recorded crime for a quarter of a century. The Chief Constable of Lancashire said the government's police cuts had made it much more difficult to keep people safe. Is he wrong? Can I say to the right honourable gentleman, on this issue of recording crime, he mentions the uh, Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary. It's precisely because when I was Home Secretary, I asked HMIC to look at the recording of police crime to make sure that police forces were doing it properly. And indeed, some changes were made as a result of that. So we now see the better recording of crime. We also see we also see £450 million extra being made available to the police. But what have we also seen over the last few years? The creation of the National Crime Agency. Our police forces taking more notice of uh, helping to support vulnerable victims, doing more on modern slavery, doing more on domestic violence, taking issues seriously that they weren't taking seriously before. Mr Speaker, if you ask the inspector to look at unrecorded crime and they tell you what's going on, the least you can do is act on what they tell you. <laughs> Mr Speaker, if I could quote something at the Prime Minister, she might, it might sound familiar to her. The first duty of the government is to protect the public and keep them safe. And I have to say to the government that they are not putting enough focus on police resources. If she casts her eyes to the far back benches of the Conservative Party, She'll see the member for Shipley. That's what he said about her government and what it's doing. Gun crime, Mr Speaker, has increased by 20% in the last year. The Chief Constable of Merseyside said recently, have I got sufficient resources to fight gun crime? No, I haven't. Does the Prime Minister think he's crying wolf? The right honourable gentleman can't get away from the fact 
that what the government is doing is protecting police budgets, in fact, not just protecting police budgets, but increasing with £450 million extra pounds. What we are also doing is ensuring that our police have the powers that they need to do the job that we want them to do. I seem to remember the Right Honourable Gentleman doesn't have that good a record when it comes to increasing the powers for the police to do their job. Mr Speaker, since 2015, direct government funding to the police has fallen by £413 million. The Chief Constable of the West Midlands, Dave Thompson, said the current flat cash settlement for policing means force budgets will fall in real terms. As well as police cuts, other public service cuts are clearly contributing to the rise in crime. 3,600 youth workers have lost their jobs. 600 youth centres closed and boarded up. Probation service cut and privatised. Re-offenders committing more offences. When it comes to tackling crime, prevention and cure are two sides of the same coin. So why is the government cutting both prevention and cure? I have to say to the Right Honourable Gentleman, we've put in place various uh, pieces of work on anti-knife crime, on serious violence, on uh, issues like domestic violence. But I come back to the point I made in the last, uh, my last response. The Leader of the Opposition, the Right Honourable Gentleman, voted against changing the law so that anyone caught carrying a knife for a second time would face a custodial sentence. has called for much shorter sentences for those who break the law. And he might want to reflect on the fact that when there was a Conservative mayor in London, knife crime went down. Now there's a Labour mayor in London, knife crime is going up. Jeremy Corbyn! Mr Speaker, I am very clear that crime is of course wrong. The way you deal with it is... The way you deal with it is by an effective probation service, is by community service orders, is by the rehabilitation of offenders. And what she said goes to the heart of the Prime Minister's record. She, Mr Speaker, was Home Secretary for six years. Crime is up, violent crime rising, police numbers down and Chief Constables saying they no longer have the resources to keep communities safe. After seven years, seven years of cuts, will the Prime Minister today admit that her government's relentless cuts to police, probation services and social services have left us less safe? The reality is you can't have public safety on the cheap. Well, the Right Honourable Gentleman really needs to reflect on what Labour would be doing if they were in the government. pay for our public services if you have a strong economy. And what would, what, would we see, what would we see with the Labour Party? Well, we don't need to ask ourselves what we'd see with the Labour Party, because the Shadow Chancellor's advisor told us at the weekend, he said this, we need to think about the obvious problems which might face a radical Labour government, such as capital flight or a run on the pound. That's what Labour would do. Bankrupt Britain and the police would have less money under Labour than under the Conservatives. Raymond Tishti! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Travelling around the country and meeting people from diverse communities, members of the Jewish and the Muslim community have raised the point for the Coroner's Act to specifically take into account people's faith considerations, as in their faith, loved ones must be buried within 24 hours. Will the Prime Minister join me and the Honourable Member for Maidstone and Faith Communities to look at this very important matter? Can I say to uh, my Honourable Friend, I'd like to thank him for raising this point, because he's doing so on behalf of communities across the country, and he does so from a unique position with his own uh, experience and understanding of these issues. 
It is important that we take into account specific requirements of someone's faith, especially when they've lost a loved one and are grieving. And I know that although, as he will be aware, coroners are an independent judicial office, I understand that the Ministry of Justice is speaking to the Chief Coroner about this point to see what more can be done. And I'm sure that my right honourable friend, the Lord Chancellor, will be happy to meet and discuss this issue further with my honourable friend. In Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday it was announced that ten Royal Bank of Scotland branches in Scotland that had been earmarked for closure are to be reprieved. I am grateful for that news, which is on the back of community pressure and the leadership which has been shown by the Scottish National Party on this issue. On three occasions, I have asked the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's question to bring Ross McEwen into 10 Downing Street for the Prime Minister to accept her responsibilities given we own RBS. Now we've saved 10 branches. Will will the Prime Minister call in Ross McEwen and join us and call for all the branches to remain open? to the right honourable gentleman. As uh, I've said before, of course it's important that customers, especially those who are vulnerable, can can call on the services that they need. Obviously, I welcome the decision from Royal Bank of Scotland. This is, as I've said, commercial decisions for them. But if the right honourable gentleman is so keen on ensuring that communities and people perhaps in remote communities have access to the services that they need, he should ask himself why it is that the Scottish Government has been such a failure in ensuring that people in remote communities have broadband access to online banking. They need to get their act together because, quite simply, Scotland under the Nats is getting left behind. Ian Blackford! Mr Speaker, that was pathetic. The Prime Minister hasn't lifted a finger. We've saved the banks. Mr Speaker, Yesterday we celebrated the achievements of the suffragette movement, which was about democracy, equality and fairness for women. However, today in the United Kingdom, 3.8 million women are not receiving the pension they are entitled to. A vote in this House last November received unanimous cross-party support 288 to zero, calling on the government in London to do the right thing. Will the Prime Minister do her bit? for gender equality and end the injustice faced by 1950s women. To the right honourable gentleman, that as people are living longer, it is important that we equalise the retirement age between the pension age between men and women. We are doing that. We are doing that faster. We have already acted to give greater protection to the women involved. An extra one billion pounds has been put in to ensure that nobody is going to see their uh, pension entitlement changed by more than 18 months. That was a real response to the issue that was uh, that was being addressed. But I think if he wants if he wants to talk about equality, if he wants to talk about equality, then he has to recognise the importance of the equality of the state pension age between men and women. Mr. Philip Davis. Thank you, uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. I uh, I never thought I'd see the day when where I lead the leader of the opposition follows. Uh, <laughs> There's clearly hope for him yet. Um, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, last year uh, the government advertised for the post of disability commissioner. Uh, Lord Shinquin, my noble friend, applied for the position and was appointed to the position. Uh, yet only a few weeks later he was told by the Equality and Human Rights Commission that the post had been abolished altogether. Was the Prime Minister consulted about that decision? Does she agree with the decision to abolish that post? And if not, can I ask her to urge the Equality and Human Rights Commission to reinstate the post of Disability Commissioner and reinstall Lord Shinquin to his rightful place on the... Can I thank my honourable friend for raising this point? And can I first of all say I've known the noble Lord Lord Shinquin for many, many years. He has been a valiant champion of the rights of disabled people over those years. And I think his own his own experience and the example that he sets in his work in public life and particularly in the other place are a fine example of uh, of how disabled people can actually be standing up, speaking up, and ensuring that they're taking their rightful place in public life. On this issue of the Disability Commissioner, the EHRC 
is an independent body. It was their decision to abolish the Disability Commissioner. Uh, the question is, the question is uh, what is being done to help disabled people and how can we ensure we're helping disabled people? And that's why we are committed to tackling the injustices that disabled people face. We're spending over £50 billion a year on benefits to support disabled people and people with health conditions. That's a record high. But of course, we do want to ensure, and I would urge the EHRC to ensure that in their work, they are paying proper attention to the needs and rights of disabled people, because that is an important part of their remit. Jenny Chapman. Mr Speaker, my constituent's son was killed by a learner driver taking a lesson. With one in four young drivers being involved in an accident within the first two years of starting to drive, and 400 deaths or serious injuries on our roads involving young drivers each year, will the Prime Minister meet with me and my constituents to hear their story and consider the introduction of a graduated licensing system for the UK as they have in other countries? Yeah, yeah. The, the Honourable Lady has obviously raised an important issue, and I will certainly look at the request that she has made, uh, and I will also ask the Department of Transport to look at this as an issue. And as she says, there are too many people who suffer uh, loss and tragedy at the, uh, at the hands of learner drivers in these circumstances, and we will certainly look at that. Dr Andrew Murison. Yeah. The yeah. Royal Marines are the most adaptable of our elite infantry. They are central <laughs> to our amphibious capability and they provide much of our special forces. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that reducing them further at this stage would be inconsistent with this Government's strong record on defence and security? Yeah. Well, can I say to my honourable friend that the Royal Marines do indeed play a vital role in defending our country and I pay tribute to them for all that they do. Protecting the UK is, of course, our priority. And as my honourable friend will know, we have in place now a, uh, a review, a modernising defence programme, which is about ensuring that the defence capabilities we have meet the rapidly changing and evolving threats that we face. I think that's the right thing for us to do. Uh, but of course, any uh, comments that have been made, any suggestions that have been made about cuts to defence are purely speculative. And I would remind my honourable friend and other members of this House that in fact we are committed to increasing our spending on defence. In offering him best wishes for his birthday on Sunday, I call Mr Dennis Skinner. Well, I didn't know about that. <laughs> I don't celebrate things like that. I don't think you should celebrate age. Anyway, there are another group of people that need help, and they're the people that work in the National Health Service. Yes. And what they told me last week was the best period that they ever experienced was in the Labour government when they had the money increase from thirty-three billion pounds in nineteen ninety-seven to a hundred billion pounds in two in two thousand and ten. That was a golden period. Why did they do it? How did they do it? The Chancellor of the Exchequer put one percent on the national insurance and in a way in hypothecation terms. That went directly to the health service and it's called long-term stability. Under this government, they don't know whether they're coming or going. It's high time this government did the same as we did between 97 and 2010. Get weaving. Dennis. Can I say to the honourable gentleman, he says, why will the Labour Party in that position of being to able to spend more on public services? I'll tell him why. Because a Conservative government had left a golden economic legacy. Mr Costa, I don't think you knew how popular you are. Mr Costa, get... Well, 
Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Uh, Conservative-led Harborough District Council have recently refused IDI Gaisley's proposed expansion of the enormous Magna Park Logistics Park in my constituency. Given the Prime Minister's recent welcome remarks about sustainable developments, will she please arrange for me to meet the relevant government ministers to discuss the creation of a national planning framework for the future location of these enormous logistics parks. My honourable friend has raised an important point, and uh, obviously this is a matter that is of considerable interest to his constituents. Of course we need to get the right balance between enabling development and therefore growth to take place while continuing to protect and enhance our natural environment. And the purpose of the planning system is to contribute to achieving that sustainable development. But with regard to the very specific issue about these logistics parks, uh, I'm sure that uh, one of the ministers from Housing and Communities and Local Government, indeed possibly my uh, right honourable friend, the Housing Secretary, will be happy to meet with him and discuss it with him. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware if a universal credit claimant forgets their username or password, they must attend a face-to-face interview at a job centre to have them reset? The Secretary of State can't give a date when this will be fixed, so will the Prime Minister commit to no further job centre closures until universal credit claimants can access basic online functions as available in the case of HMRC and banking? I will ask my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, to look carefully at uh, ensuring that that a date is identified when that change is going to be made. Alex Shelbrook. Mr Speaker, according to library statistics, around 3,400 people in my constituency in Rothwell last year were diagnosed with cancer. Cancer survival rates have meant there are 7,000 people alive today who may not have been if the cancer survival rates of 2010 were still in place. Does my right honourable friend um, see this as a testament to the NHS, the investment in the government, and does she welcome the news yes. and recognise there's more we can be doing? Well, I absolutely agree, my friend, with my honourable friend. It's very good news that there are 7,000 more people alive today, uh, cancer sufferers who are alive today. Who- than we would have been had we simply continued uh, in the uh, way that we were at 2010. I'm very happy to join him in welcoming that news. Uh, Cancer survival rates have increased year on year. Of course, we want them to increase even further. Last year, we had 7 million more diagnostic tests than in 2010, and 290,000 patients started treatment for cancer. That's 57,000 more than in 2010, but he's absolutely right. We should welcome the improvement that's been made. We should congratulate those and thank the NHS staff for all they've been doing, but there is more for us to do. And that's why we're backing up our uh, uh, plans for cancer with a further £600 million to implement the cancer strategy for England. Stephen Morgan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister, as we've just heard, continues to be in denial about the rising level of crime and falling police numbers. Despite her repeated assurances, budgets have not been protected for my local police force, with 80 million and 1,000 police officers lost already. Will she meet with me and a delegation of Portsmouth small businesses that do so much for my local economy, yet have seen significant rises and break-ins in crime as a result of these Tory cuts? Uh, well, I say to the honourable gentleman that for those of, obviously I will look at his request, but for those who are concerned about the way in which policing is being undertaken in their area, then they should actually speak to the local police who make operational decisions about what is happening. Um, we, we protected overall police spending and we continue to protect overall police spending. Indeed, more money is being put into the police. And I remind the honourable gentleman that it was a Labour shadow Home Secretary who said that the police budgets could be cut by 10%. Derek Thomas. NHS figures show that in the South West, NHS funding is two, the growth in NHS funding is 2.2% less than the national average. It's also true that it's more challenging in the South West with an ageing demographic and sparsity. Does the Prime Minister agree with my friend the Prime Minister agree, agree with me that providers in the South West, including NHS Kurnow, deserve their fair share of NHS funding? And will she act 
take action to address this inequality. Yeah, yeah. I say to my honourable friend that the national formula that, of course, is the basis for calculating the funding for CCGs does take into account a large number of factors, including rurality and including demographics, um, which are the factors that he has suggested need to be considered. Uh, NHS Kurnow did see an increase in their funding this year and will see a further increase in their funding next year, taking funding to over £760 million. This is part of our commitment to ensuring that we are putting extra funding into the NHS, but of course we continue to look at ensuring that the distribution of that uh, funding takes account of all the factors that it needs to. Leila Moran. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Under the 1824 Vagrancy Act, rough sleeping is illegal. The Act was used nearly 2,000 times last year to drag homeless people before the courts. Scotland and Northern Ireland have already repealed it. So will the Prime Minister support my bill that consigns this heartless Dickensian law to the history books across the whole of the United Kingdom? What we are doing is recognising that we do need to take action in relation to rough sleeping. That's why we're putting more money into projects uh, 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 to reduce rough sleeping and indeed projects like uh, Housing First, which are being put into place in a number of places in the country, to ensure that we can provide for those who are rough sleeping. None of us want to see anybody rough sleeping on our streets. That's why the government is taking action. Sir William Cash. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, today is the anniversary of the signing of the Maastricht Treaty. We have come a very long way. May I congratulate, may I congratulate my right honourable friend on her approach to the Customs Union. May I also mention the fact that in the Liaison Committee last December, I warned her about ultimatums from the EU and again in my UQ only last week. Would she be good enough to be very robust when discussing these matters in the Brexit committees, I'm sure she will be, in order to ensure that we repudiate any of these EU threats? I can assure my, uh, I can assure my honourable friend. First of all, I suspect that at the time that the legislation was going through in the uh, in this house, there weren't many who th- would have thought my honourable friend would be standing up recognising the anniversary of the signing of the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, I suspect he only feels able to do so because we are coming out of the European Union, and I can assure him we will be robust in our arguments. As I've said right from the very beginning, we will hear noises off. We will hear all sorts of things being said about positions that are being taken. What matters is the positions that we take in the negotiations as we sit down and negotiate the best deal. We've shown we can do that. We did it in December and we're going to do it again. Elma Walker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Kirklees Council, who serve my constituency of Cone Valley, have already had their budget cut by nearly £200 million, with a possible £45 million of cuts to come. Which of the following things would the Prime Minister recommend they cut next? Care for an older person with dementia, emptying the bins, providing hot school meals for vulnerable children, libraries, leisure centres or museums, or supporting the 24% of children living in poverty? Your choice, Prime Minister. I would have thought that the Honourable Lady should have been welcoming the improvements that have taken place in her constituency, should have welcomed the many more children who are in good or outstanding schools as a result of this government, should have welcomed the extra health funding, should have welcomed the more people who have... Uh, order. The Prime Minister is in the middle of giving her answer. Well, maybe she'd concluded it, but she might order. Members mustn't shout at the Prime Minister when she's giving her answer. No? OK. Chris Phil. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Recent reports have suggested that the European Commission is asking that we enter into certain limited legally binding agreements in relation to bits of our exit in isolation. Could the Prime Minister confirm that it remains the Government's policy that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed and therefore we'll only enter into a legally binding agreement in relation to the entire exit agreement and not just parts of it? friend is, is right and it was reflected in the joint report that was published in December that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. There are sir, the, the negotiations that are now taking place are first of all to put uh, greater detail into the definition of the implementation period and we expect to do that by the March European Council. 
Alongside that, there is the looking at the legal basis of the withdrawal agreement, which of course will have to come to this Parliament for agreement as the, with both of those, as the withdrawal agreement and implementation bill in due course. At that stage, uh, I would expect to have the future relationship set out in a way so that people are able to look at the whole package when they come to make that decision. Sir Vincent Cable. The Prime Minister knows that one of the key objectives of American trade negotiators in any future deal uh, after Brexit is to secure access for American companies to business in the NHS. Can she give an absolute guarantee that in those negotiations the NHS will be excluded from their scope? And can she confirm that in her conversations with President Trump she's made it absolutely clear to him that the NHS is not for sale? I have to say to the right honourable gentleman that we are uh, starting the discussions with the American administration, first of all looking at what we can do to increase trade between the US and the United Kingdom already, even before the possibility of any free trade agreement. Uh, And he doesn't know what they're going to say in their requirements for that free trade agreement. We will go into those negotiations to get the best possible deal for the United Kingdom. Michelle Donnellan. A recent report by Oakland Doors highlights the top countries that suffer horrific persecution against Christians. We need to take action and send a signal to other nations. These are countries that are often associated with luxury holidays. Will the Prime Minister consider earmarking a specific fixed percentage of international aid to go towards tackling religious persecution? Yes. Well, um, I have to say to my honourable friend that this is an issue that I know is of concern to many members of this House. And I was pleased a matter of weeks ago to meet Father Daniel from uh, Nineveh and Idlib, who talked about the very real persecution that his uh, uh, congregation were suffering and had suffered in the past. And uh, he presented me with a Bible which was burnt, which had been rescued uh, when a church had actually been set on fire. This is a real issue. We are, uh, all of our aid is distributed on the basis of need to ensure that civilians are not discriminated against on the basis of race, ethnicity or religion. And we are working with governments, the international community and the United Nations to support the rights of minorities and to ensure our, our aid does reach those in need. But we will, of course, further explore what more support we can give to not the persecution of religious minorities. Ruben. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister will be aware that all free trade agreements involve some customs checks and therefore infrastructure at frontiers which would be completely incompatible with maintaining an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. As the Cabinet Subcommittee is apparently today finally getting round to discussing this, could the Prime Minister explain to the House why she is so opposed to the UK remaining in a customs union with the EU, when not only would this be better for the British economy than a vague, deep and special partnership, whatever that is, but would help to ensure that that border remains as it is today, which is what all of us want. The United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. That means we're leaving the single market. We're leaving the customs union because if we were full members of the customs union, we would not be able to do trade deals around the rest of the world. And we're going to have an independent trade policy and do those deals. And he asks me about customs arrangements. Well, I have to say to him that I suggest he looks at the paper that was published by the government last summer. Robert Halfon. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Um, Headway, the brain injury charity, says that a family recently had to pay £1,500 over 15 weeks for hospital car parking charges. Click sergeants say uh, families who see their sick children with cancer have to pay hundreds of pounds. Despite government guidelines, 50% of hospitals charge the disabled and staff from nurses to hospital porters have to pay hospital car parking charges. Given the unanimous motion last week in the House of Commons, will my honourable friend address this social injustice and abolish hospital car parking charges once and for all? I recognise that this is an issue that my honourable friend has been 
uh, campaigning on for some time. As he says in his question, we have, of course, set uh, strong guidance to uh, national health to hospital trusts on the issue of uh, car parking charges, and we do, of course, look to ensure that those are being uh, that those are being met. Of course, individual hospitals are taking their own decisions in relation to this uh, to this matter. But I think it's right that the government has set very clear guidelines to those hospitals as to how they should approach this. Ellen Goodman. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister has done much to tackle modern slavery, but my constituent was trafficked here as a child, sold at least once on the long journey, and then forced to work in the dark in a cannabis factory for years. Now the Home Office is proposing to send him back to Vietnam. Will the Prime Minister intervene, not just in this case, but in this complex and confused area of the law? I recognise, uh, as the Honourable Lady says, that there are cases which are complex in terms of the legal application. The Ho- my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, has heard the uh, case that the Honourable Lady has, has uh, set out, and I'm sure will look at that particular issue, both the individual case but also the, the, the wider point that uh, the Honourable Lady is making. But I'm sure we all want to ensure that actually, as we know, the best possible solution to this is for people like her constituent not to be trafficked into the UK in the first place to be working in these cannabis factories. Um, like many, like many, I'm delighted to note the good progress in lifting the ban on beef exports to China. What is my right honourable friend doing to ensure that we are able to export Scots beef and other Scottish products, such as whisky, to other parts or all parts of the world? Well, can I say to my honourable friend, I was very pleased that when I was in China last week, we were able to see uh, to work with the Chinese government towards that. Uh, uh, opening up of the Chinese market, particularly to beef products and also to dairy products, which are two key issues for the, uh, for the United Kingdom. But he, uh, also, I'm pleased to say that the Chief Executive of the Scotch Whisky Association was on the business delegation with me uh, and was doing everything that she does most uh, uh, ably to promote uh, the uh, interests of Scotch whisky. Uh, and, of course, the answer to his question is that what we're doing is making sure that we can have an independent trade policy, developing trade uh, deals around the rest of the world, which means that good Scottish products and, indeed, good products from the rest of the UK can be sold around the world. Mr Speaker, the centuries-old GKN, a world-class company, Britain's third biggest engineering company, is facing a hostile takeover by Melrose, leading to break-up, sell-off, closures and redundancies. That would be to make a mockery of industrial strategy. Can I ask the Prime Minister this? The government has the power to intervene because of the defence work carried out by GKN. Will the Prime Minister act in the national interest and block this unwanted takeover? say to the honourable gentleman that of course the business department will be looking closely and have been following closely the issue that he has raised and I can assure him that I and the government as a whole will always act in the UK national interest. Undeveloped brownfield sites in the country located in my constituency at Stanton. Will my right honourable friend explain to the House how the new housing infrastructure fund will help Erewash residents buy a new home? Well, can I say to my honourable friend that I think the housing infrastructure fund is a very important development. Uh, one of the major complaints that uh, constituents often have and residents have when they see the possibility of development in their area is lack of infrastructure. What the Housing Infrastructure Fund enables is that infrastructure to be built, to be put in place, so it can support developments in a way that helps support local residents. Uh, we, I'm very pleased with the announcement of nearly £900 million, uh, which my, the Housing Secretary announced last week. Um, we're seeing real interest in the Housing Infrastructure Fund. That's making a difference. It's enabling more homes to be built and her, more of her constituents to be able to buy their own home. Speaker, my constituent's 58. She has COPD, four pins in her leg, a walking frame, and is just out of hospital after having blood clots in her lung. She got a taxi to Bridgeton Job Centre yesterday, only to find the doors locked because the government closed it on Friday. Will she apologise for not having told my constituents, any of the constituents apparently in Bridgeton, whose job centres were being closed? Will she refund my constituent the £10 she spent on a taxi? And will she apologise for this absolutely ridiculous situation? Can I say to the Honourable Lady that yes, we are seeing 
some uh, job centres being closed in Scotland. There's not going to be any decrease in the level of service that is offered to the people of Scotland. We're increasing the number of work coaches across the, uh, across the country. What we're doing is ensuring that we can continue to provide a good service to the people of Scotland. Vicky Ford. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Intimidation on social media is a growing issue for many people across the country, and yesterday highlighted it especially for women standing for election. Can my right honourable friend update us on the progress that's being made, and does she agree we should take no lessons from a party whose shadow exactly. chancellor has called for violence exactly. against women on this side? Yeah. Yes, can I say to can I say to my honourable friend that I think this issue is a particularly important one. I did announce yesterday, uh, as I said yesterday, as indeed my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, had said at the weekend, that we are consulting on a uh, new offence of intimidation of election candidates and campaigners that follows the report from Lord Bew and his committee about the degree to which there was intimidation at the last general election, particularly intimidation of women, BME candidates and LGBT uh, candidates. Uh, uh, this, is an absolute, this is an absolute disgrace. It has no part in our public life. And I would urge the Shadow Chancellor once again, and he keeps refusing to do this, to apologise to the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions for saying she should be lynched. Order! Order. Urgent question. Rebecca Long Bailey. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I ask the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy if he will make a statement today on the government's response to the Taylor Review. Thank, thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm delighted to set out the government response to the review of modern working, which was led by Matthew Taylor. Matthew Taylor set out his ambition that government should place as much emphasis on creating quality jobs as it does on the number of jobs. Good work and developing better jobs for everyone in the British economy is at the centre of the industrial strategy vision. The Prime Minister has repeatedly said that as we leave the EU, there will be no rollback of employment protections. But today, we're committing to go further than that and to seek to enhance rights and protections in the modern workplace for even more people. We will support employers who give individuals their correct employment rights, but we will prevent undercutting by unscrupulous employers who try to game the system by clearly defining who is employed and who is not. We will extend the rights to receive a payslip to all workers, including stating the hours that they work. We are requiring employers to clearly set out written terms from day one of the employment relationship and extending that to all workers. We're taking forward, Mr Speaker, 52 of the 53 recommendations in the Taylor Review and all but one of the recommendations from the joint report of the Bayes and DWP Select Committees. For workers on zero-hour contracts, we are creating a right to request a stable contract. For the first time, Mr Speaker, for the first time, the State will take responsibility for enforcing a wider set of employment rights, including sick pay and holiday pay, for the most vulnerable of workers. And for employers who lose tribunal claims against staff and are found to have had no regard to the law, they will face fines of up to £20,000 from the tribunal, quadrupled from the current 5000 and we will also ensure that when an empl employment tribunal award is made, it's paid correctly. The Government 
is very clear, uh, is very grateful rather to Matthew Taylor and his panel, as well as to the many individuals and organisations who contributed to this review. I'd also like to thank the Bay's uh, Work and Pensions and Scottish Affairs Select Committees for their contributions to this work. Mr Speaker, through this response we are acting to ensure good work for all, to protect the rights of those on low pay and to ensure that more people get protection, the security and certainty in the work that they do. Rebecca Long-Bailey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The tragic case of Don Lane, DPD gig worker, epitomises the precarious and unstable working life many people face and the failure of the government to protect workers. They needed to do something bold today, but it appears that they're simply papering over these bleak realities with rhetoric. Launching four consultations, merely considering proposals and tweaking the law here and there is not good enough. How would any of this, any of it, actually help Don Lane? It simply wouldn't. That's the fact of the matter. So I ask the Minister, which rights will apply to which workers from day one? How will this be quantified for zero-hours workers? Why, despite public support, has the government not protected agency workers by simply abolishing undercutting through the Swedish derogation? How does a right to request more staple hours actually differ from the current position? Because without an obligation on the employer to accept such a request, it's meaningless. Why has the government not brought forward any meaningful proposals to protect gig workers? Defining working time misses the point. We needed clarity on workers being paid when they're logged into apps waiting to receive jobs, as well as clear and urgent direction on the legal status of gig workers. Why was there not even one mention, not one mention of trade unions? And on the genuinely self-employed, we see the creation of a website allowing the self-employed to talk to each other. Well, bravo. Why was there no system of support, no recognition of the precariousness of their situation? Mr Speaker, this is simply window dressing. What we needed today was a radical new architecture of the law at work to protect workers where the genuinely self-employed were offered key protections and in which the involvement of workers through their trade unions was crucial. We saw none of this and to miss out these from any recommendations is to miss out the ocean and simply look at the pebbles underneath. Minister Andrew Griffiths. Thank you very much Mr Speaker and you know I have to say I share the Honourable Lady's desire to improve the rights and protections for the workers that we represent in our constituencies but it is It is disappointing, Mr Speaker, that in her long response she was unable to welcome any of the steps that we are taking. As a result of the actions set out in our response to this review, as a result of those actions, millions of workers will get greater rights, the access to more protection. Indeed, I would argue argue that we can rightly claim to be leading the world in improving the quality of work for 